morning we're going to begin in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Beginning in verse 12. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Now on the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar off a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it is not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Go down to verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Master or Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For surely I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Um, it's reading this this morning, and there's a couple things, of course, that always seem to stand out when you read the when you read a passage of scripture. And so, the first thing is is that nothing God does without is without a purpose. And so, when we see this whole thing happens with this fig tree. Um, but Jesus goes up to this fig tree and he's looking for fruit on it and he says it's not the season of figs well why is he looking for fruit on a, what's he looking for figs on a fig tree if it's not the season for figs well having fig trees you, you know you I have a little bit of insight on this anybody that has a fig tree that there's actually you get figs before the season of figs from the year before, in the old wood, you get a small amount of figs from the first, uh, from the midsummer, uh, around July, beginning of July, late June, beginning of July, so I guess it'd be early summer. And then you have the main season of figs is in August, September, October. So Jesus, no doubt, was coming to the early season looking in early summer for figs, and there was none on it. And so, he says, he didn't find anything on it. So he says, verse 14, let no one eat from the fruit ever again. Well, why would he do something to the tree like that? Why would he do something so severe like that? And we read, it says, they came by in the morning and they saw the fig tree was dried up from the roots. He killed the tree. He pronounced a curse over the tree and the tree died. It was because he was trying to teach us something. There was an object lesson in what this what happens here, not just trying to be mean to a tree. 
he's trying to teach us something in what happens to this tree. In verse 21, Peter, remembering, (coughs) said to him, Master, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So they're amazed at this. Look, it happened. You just said the word and it happened. And that's what this is about. And Jesus' response to what Peter said was, have faith in God. That whole object lesson about speaking that to that fig tree and what happened to the fig tree was the first words out of his mouth when Peter said that was, Peter saw it and said it was, have faith in God. So we know the whole object lesson is about faith in God. And so we have to try to get insight, try to understand that God teach us, that the Holy Spirit give us insight into what happened here. Have faith in God, for surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast out into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. By what right could somebody be so bold as to say something like that and believe it would happen? In the book of Hebrews, we read this. Let us come boldly, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us come boldly before the throne of throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us to pray. One of the things he taught them was a parable about boldness. Because of their boldness, because this man's boldness will give him as much as he wants. How can we have such boldness? It comes from confidence about who we are. If we are in Christ, if we believe the message of the gospel, and we have come into Christ, we become the children of God. And the rights and the privileges of the children of God are open to us. As we read often in 1 Corinthians, where it says the promises of God are yes in Christ and amen to the glory of God. So the things that God promises are yes if we are in Christ. If we are not in Christ, then they're not. But if we are in Christ, then they are. But believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And then he takes it a step further and he takes it to our prayer life. And this becomes very practical to each of us. Therefore, or since that's true, what he just said before that, about whatever we say in prayer, whatever we say believes that those things he says will be done, since that's true, and he will have whatever he says, he takes it to prayer, whatever we say in prayer. Therefore I say to you, whatever you things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And you see the fight of faith and prayer. Do we believe that what we say when we pray, the things that we ask when we pray, we will receive them? 
Because he says, if you do, then you'll receive them. If you do believe the things you ask praying, if you believe you will receive them, then you will. So, I guess we can also conclude, can't we, that the opposite is also true? That if we, when we pray, we don't believe we'll receive those things that we won't. Whatever things we ask when we pray, if we don't believe that we'll receive them, then we won't. I mean, it certainly implies that, doesn't it? It doesn't come out and actually say that, but it certainly implies that. Because it connects the receiving of those things with believing that when we, the things that we ask, we will receive them. We must, in order to please God, we must believe He will reward us for diligently seeking Him. So there's a connection all the way around between believing that God will answer us and, and He will help us and He will give us the things that we ask for according to His Word and what we receive. And there's a most definite connection between the two. The last part is about forgiving. And this really is not on the subject, but since it's there, it's worthwhile to look at that. He says, and when you stand praying, because this is, he's talking about us praying, he says, if anyone has done anything wrong to you, he says, forgive him, that your Father may forgive you. Your sins. <clears throat> And he says, and in this part he actually does say the opposite. Because if you don't forgive, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. The culture I grew up in was a culture when somebody wronged you, uh, you held a grudge. And the grudge sometimes was to the grave (laughs) and I've seen it I've heard it with my different relatives and things like that it was this old school hard nose kind of you you wrong me you're dead to me kind of thing you know and yet here Jesus says the opposite and everybody's been wronged in life not all the same ways some of them the same but not all the same ways. But Jesus doesn't go through and say in certain ways. He says, if someone has wronged you, to forgive them if they're wrong, don't hold a grudge against them. And he also says, he also connects that with us being forgiven ourselves. I didn't say that he did. This is what he says. And so we know we want to be forgiven of our sins. And he connects for forgiveness from from God forgiving us to, you know, if we're hard-nosed to others, if we hold a grudge towards others, then God will hold that against us. And so we want to have a clear conscience. He says, whenever you stand, pray. And God, <clears throat> it's funny that sometimes God will bring to our remembrance people that have wronged us while we're praying in our prayer time. And it's important in those times to forgive. I, I can honestly testify that 
there's been times that I thought I forgave people. I even told them I forgave them. But when I examined myself, I still found that deep down inside there was things that I was doing and attitudes that I had that revealed that I still had a grudge toward them. I hadn't forgiven them. And God pointed that out to me in prayer. And so I let go of it. You have to let go of it. By the grace of God, He gives us, with the ability, all the other abilities He gives us to follow, He gives us the ability, He enlarges our heart and gives us the ability to forgive and to have mercy. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven, Jesus says in another place. So the next one I want to go to is in the chapter before that, chapter 10. Verse 46. And when they had come to Jericho, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Master, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately received the sight and followed Jesus on the road. You know, the one thing that always stood out to me from the very time I was a young Christian, and from the very first time I read this, I always asked myself this question. And, and why is it even recorded this way? You know, Here's this blind man shouting for Jesus and, and, and finally they lead him to Jesus. And when someone's being led to Jesus, someone's being led to, it's pretty obvious when somebody's blind. And uh, they called the blind man, blind man to him. He rose and came to Jesus. If you see a blind man walking, it, it, I mean, it doesn't take too hard to figure out. And, but yet Jesus says to him, he says, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, wouldn't it be obvious? I mean, Jesus is going around casting out demons, healing the sick, <coughs> cleansing the lepers, uh, giving the blind men sight, the lame men walk, all these things. He's done this before. And this blind man comes to him. And you say, well, why is Jesus asking him that? Because it's so obvious. Well, there, again, the things that are recorded are there for our learning. And it's specifically recorded for this reason. God knows everything already. And people make these assumptions. Oh, well, God already knows when you don't have to pray. He already knows that. <clears throat> Jesus said in another place, the Father already knows the things that you need. But yet he insists that we ask him anyway. Ask and you shall receive. We have to exercise our faith in prayer. He insists that we exercise faith. That's who God is. 
He's the one who set it up this way for his reasons, and he's God. What do you want me to do for you? It's like somebody is bleeding, coming to you and says, Well, what do you <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? You know, it's like sometimes things are that obvious, but yet as obvious as it is, he still wants us to ask. And to take that time to exercise our faith. And then after he exercises his faith, in verse 52, Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. There is a connection, a direct correction in Jesus' words between the man's faith and what happened to him. Your faith has made you well. Now, it wasn't the man's power that made him well. It was faith in the one who had the power to make him well, that made him well. So Jesus made that connection there between his faith and him receiving his sight. The next one is in uh, chapter 9, a chapter over into chapter 9. beginning in verse 17, the Gospel of Mark still. Ben, if you could read for me, it's a little raspy, uh, from verse 17 uh, to verse... um, Uh, uh, 27. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. Whenever it seizes him, it throws throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy himself. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, Come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The first thing to take note of is is that uh, some people who are ill... 
in one place uh, it talks about a woman who had a had a spirit of infirmity of sickness and she was slumped over and Jesus healed her and here it talks about a deaf and dumb spirit the man was deaf and dumb because he had a demonic spirit in him uh in my Pentecostal experience as a younger Christian, uh, they related every sickness and disease to having a spirit. But, <laughs> which I don't agree with, of course, because the last thing we read about was blind Bartimaeus. They didn't say anything about casting a spirit out of him. He just said he was healed of his blindness. Uh, there are some people who are ill because they're ill, and there's some people who have certain conditions because they have demon possession or they a, a spirit of infirmity or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so there are supernatural spirits in the world that are not from God, fallen angels, and sometimes they manifest themselves in people in certain ways, and we would believe that that exists to this day. And uh, we have seen, some of us have seen manifestations of that, including some people have strangeness and mental illness and things like that that are connected to having a spirit. So anyway, um, and also supernatural strengths. Just a side side note there. So this this boy had a demonic spirit in him and and his disciples couldn't cast it out when Jesus was away. And so Jesus' response is about a faithless generation. He has long shall I be with you. A faithless or unbelieving generation. And so in verse 22, in verse 21, he tells Jesus that this has been happening since childhood and often he has thrown him both into the fire and water to destroy him. But he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So he's not even sure Jesus can do anything because his disciples can't. But Jesus' response to his if, he begins with an if of his own. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And here we have it again. Jesus is making these statements that we have a hard time know, putting into practice in our life, putting into practice in our thinking, to deprogram ourselves from our natural, carnal way of the world kind of thinking, natural wisdom, intellectual thinking, that this is beyond that. This is above even intellectual thinking and all psychology. This is God's Word. And he says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, there are checks and balances in the Word of God so that we don't become a reckless uh, user of the Word of God. Speaking of my Pentecostal experience, things like that, uh, as a young Christian. But, we don't want to cancel the Word of God by other scriptures, 
we want to bring together all the scriptures so that the sum of God's word is truth. Everything God's worth, bring it together and you have the truth. As it says in Psalm 119, all of God's word are true or the sum of God's word is truth. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Can you believe the things that you're praying for? That God is going to do them for you? We know He's able to do them, but do you believe He will do them if we ask? And that is where the rubber meets the road. That's where we receive or not. We receive or not. This is if we believe the things that we ask. All things are possible to him who believes. Go ahead, David. You have, you have, oh, you have your hand up. No, I was just looking up. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> okay, and so... No problem. <laughs> and so, the story goes on, Pastor Ben read, where the disciples asked, well, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And it says here that it only comes out by prayer and fasting, but in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says... Before he says that, he says very plainly, is because of your unbelief. And they cast out demons before. But somehow this was more challenging in some way, and he said straight out, it's because of your unbelief. You're not believing that all things are possible. All things are possible to him who believes. If you can believe, if you can believe in the Word of God, if you can believe the Word of God when you pray, if you believe that you will receive the things that you ask for in prayer. And yes, there are certain boundaries within the Word of God. We're not going to ask something that's against the Word of God. Things like that. There are those things that kind of keep a little bit of boundary to it, but it's within the boundary of the Word of God. All things are possible to him who believes. It's hard to believe something that's against the Word of God if we're trusting in the Word of God. That's an uphill, that's an uphill struggle. The next one. Before we go to that, what, it, what Jesus said right after that, He says, with what the man said right after that, the father child cried out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We find ourselves in this place often that we believe part way. He said, I believe, but I have unbelief. I'm, I'm caught in the middle. I'm the double-minded man who is unstable. Help me. You know, help me to overcome my unbelief. Help me to uh, overcome hardness of heart. Help me to, to believe all things that I ask in prayer so that I receive them. That was his response when Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible. Those who believe it. He said, I believe, I want to believe, but I feel hardness in me. I'm struggling and I'm fighting. Help me. And that should be our prayer too, when we struggle with unbelief. Let's say, I have unbelief and just throw up the white flag. I guess I'm not going to get what I pray for. Blah, blah, blah. No. God forbid we should have that kind of a retiring attitude. We have to take our place and stand firm. And if we have 
if we recognize we're struggling in trusting God, that we ask Him to help us like this man. And you see, he confessed his unbelief. And Jesus helped him and answered his prayer. The next one is in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. We're going in reverse in the Gospel of Mark. He's in his hometown of Nazareth. And it says in verse 5, chapter 6 and verse 5, now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled or was astonished because of their unbelief. It's very important to make the make the connection between that he could do he could do no mighty work there. Or he did it other places, why couldn't he do it there? In the Gospel of Matthew thirteen fifty eight it says it words it the same passage, he words it this way. He didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's why he couldn't do many mighty works there was because of their unbelief. And he was astonished at their unbelief. Again, we see the connection. The direct connection between what we believe and what we receive. We see it in Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth. They were in unbelief. They held back help from God. He couldn't do it. He couldn't because he... He couldn't because he wouldn't, because that's not the way God operates. He responds to faith, and he, and he does things according to his way and his will. He, could, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Matthew thirteen fifty eight. For they, the, his disciples, they had not understood be, about the loaves because their heart was hardened. A hardened heart. It says in Hebrews that Abraham did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief. Jesus rebuked his disciples because of their unbelief concerning the resurrection. And from there we go to Luke chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1. And he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart saying, There is in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard any man or respect anybody. Not a good guy. Now there was a widow in that city, and she said she came to him, saying, Get justice for me 
for my enemy or my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said to himself, Though I do not fear God nor respect any man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will vindicate or vindicate or avenge her, lest by her continually coming she wears me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. So before we go on, Jesus said in this parable is about praying without giving up or losing heart. Because I think all of us have come to a place of losing heart when we pray. Without, you know, it's like, it's a surrender. You know, stop praying about it. If there's things that we've needed or wanted or prayed for before we stop praying for, it's because we've lost heart about them. We stop praying about them. And then he points this out about this woman who continually keeps on coming to this guy every day, continually coming. He says, Because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her less by her continual coming. She kept on coming. Kept on coming. Yeah, I don't care about this woman. I don't care about I don't have any respect for God. I don't care about have any respect for anybody. But just because this woman keeps on coming to me, I'm gonna get she's annoying me and I'm getting gonna get rid of her because she's bothering me. So obviously it was all about him. The opposite of God. Jesus takes the furthest point away from God as an example. If this bad guy who's, who's hard-hearted and has no love and cares nothing about a woman, this poor, this poor widow woman, he has no compassion in his heart, he has no mercy, this is the complete opposite of God. If you listen to how God talks about himself, the Lord, Lord, full of kindness, and kind-hearted and compassionate and full of mercy, you know, that's who God is. The opposite of this guy. We'll say, well, why would God use somebody whose character is the opposite of him? It's very obvious if you think about it. It's because if this guy will help somebody who keeps on coming to them, what will God do? And that's what he says next. Hear what the unjust judge says. Verse 7. And shall not God not avenge his own elect? The church. People of God. His children. If this bad guy will do it just because this woman keeps on coming to him, because he's annoyed, because she's looking for help, we're told, "Come boldly to the throne of grace and mercy, that we that we may receive help and mercy for our time of need." Now there's a clear message. We come to him. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night? Continually come to him. Pray always. Men ought always to pray and not faint, not to give up. And he says his elect who cry out to him day and night. Are we crying out to him day and night? Are we praying to him day and night and exercising our faith day and night? It's a fight. We all know it's a fight and a challenge. But that's the way of the Christian. 
That's the leading of the Holy Spirit. It says it right here. The elect cry out to Him day and night. So why does God make him, us do that? Because He already heard me the first time I prayed. I've heard some people say, well, I already prayed for it. I don't have to pray anymore. That's not what Jesus says. We pray always about it. And not give up. Exercise our faith. Day and night. Exercise our faith. To cry out to Him day and night. The elect cry out to him day and night. For the same thing, sure. Why not? Day and night. Continual coming. Will he not help his own elect avenge them, who, uh, his own children who cry out day and night to them? Though he bears long with them, I tell you he will avenge them speedily. Well, which one is it? This sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it, on the, on the surface? That he, he bears along with them. They cry out day and night, and he's bearing along with them. But he will help them speedily. Well, which one is it? Bearing along? Or he bears along with them until his time. His timing. And God's timing is never wrong, it's never late. Sometimes he's waiting for us to believe. He's waiting for us to exercise faith and in, in prayer. Believing that we will receive the things that we ask to him. And there's, a, there's a other reasons too. We have to look in other places in the word of God for that. We won't do that today. But it's important to take note of those things. But he bears along with us. But when God says the word, it'll be done. And it'll be done when he says the word, speedily. Speedily, it'll be done. And then the next thing he does is he asks a question. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes back, will there be faith? Will there be this kind of faith? We're exercising faith in prayer and trusting God, even in the times of Sodom and Gomorrah and the days of Noah. But we still exercise faith in prayer. Will we still believe that the things that we ask we will receive? Not Pentecostalism, not name it and claim it. The words of Jesus. Do we believe them? Because if we believe them, we will receive the things that we ask in prayer. According to his word. Pray. And not lose heart. So I'm going to end finally with the thoughts from the James chapter 5 where James talks about the effective fervent prayer of the righteous man produces much. A righteous man has to be a man or woman who's in Christ. Because we don't have any righteousness of our own. The effective, fervent prayer. Are we praying in ways that's effective and fervent? Crying out day and night. You think of fervent. You think of boiling hot. You think of someone who's crying out to God day and night. Fervent prayer. The effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man produces much. A man who believes that he will receive a woman who believes that she will receive the things that she asks from God, that he asks from God. 
Whatsoever things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. This is not reckless. This is not reckless abandonment. This is the words of Jesus in the book of James. Are we praying in a way that's effective and fervent? The opposite is implied there too. We can pray in a way that's ineffective and cold, lukewarm. So that's our thought for today. That are we praying in a way that we believe? Do we believe we will receive the things that we ask from God? Not that He can do them. That's not the question. If you're a Christian, you believe He can. Even the big things. We know that He can. Where we're really challenged is that he believe, we believe He will do it for me. For you. Do we believe that? Because Jesus says if we do believe that, we will receive. may take a while. He bears long with us, it says. Crying out day and night. We might have been crying out day and night for something for five years, ten years. I know I have. There's been things we've been crying out for every day for ten years. haven't happened yet. Okay, if God bears long with us, it's okay. Continue to wait. Continue to pray. Not surrender one inch of ground to the enemy. To our unbelief. That's where we have to be. <clears throat> That's where I'm going to end. Dan, if you want to... Dave, Ben, you guys want to comment on that or anything else you want to share? Do. I guess I'll just share some thoughts that came to my mind. Uh, <clears throat> what is our list that we have of things we would like to be accomplished. Uh, I have, you know, I, <laughs> David said I was young and now I'm old. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor seed begging bread. Now those are basics. The righteous forsaken or seed begging bread. Uh, there's a scripture that says, having food and clothing, let us be there with content. So sometimes I think that maybe our list is too big. I will lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell safe in safety. Sometimes we're troubled at night and have trouble sleeping. And it says here that I will lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. There is a connection between having peace in our hearts and what we, our attitude towards the Word of God. And how it connects with our life. Because sometimes we're woken up at night and God calls us to pray. 
but sometimes we're restless and can't sleep and we have no peace and turmoil in our hearts because of other reasons. The Bible tells us that we can have peace in our hearts. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, let the peace of God rule your heart. But it is a choice when we read the word let, it means that there's a choice involved between whether we have God's peace in our hearts or whether we don't. So what is the difference? What is the the connection between having peace in our hearts and what the Word of God says? In Psalm 29, 11, it says, the Lord will bless His people with peace. Now, some would interpret that like peace with other nations. (laughs) But the Bible says we are in Christ to our holy nation, not national boundaries, whatever country we live in. not talking about that. So if God will bless his people with peace, then why is it sometimes we're not experiencing that peace of God? And these are the kind of things that each of us are challenged with. Why am I not experiencing that rest that the Bible talks about? In the book of Hebrews it says, those who believe do enter God's rest. And so we begin to see the connection between what God says and our attitude towards what he says. Our response to what he says. Our approach to our life according to what he says. And these are the things that we can easily overlook. It's not the way of the world. The way of the world is extremely reactionary. And we, before we're in Christ, we are programmed that way. And that's why it says to put when it says to put off the old man, it means that too, this programming, this way of thinking that we have been trained in to be reactionary. Things are growing great, things are going great, we're in peace, we're happy, we're joyful, things are not going great. We're the opposite. Watch the world we live in. It's the way it is in the world. Somebody hits the lottery, they're happy. Somebody loses at the casino, they're miserable. You know? If they, if they hit the jackpot, they're happy as can be. That's the way of the world. And we can follow suit if we just let things flow. There's sickness, there's challenges, there's problems of all kinds, and we're down. And we have that black cloud on us. And we, and we, and we have that big boulder on, on our shoulders. Something good happens. God answers a prayer. You know, we have help in some way or another. People we're praying for, God is reaching them. We see positive signs. And those are probably, oh, happy we're riding that roller coaster up on the top. 
And there we go. We're up and down. In in Christendom, it's called roller coaster Christianity. We're up and we're down. We're up and we're down. And it's not the way Jesus lived. If you examine the life of Jesus, we see that he's not like that. He seems to have some sort of secret about him that he is able to stay on a spiritual plane. You don't see Jesus down in the dumps. The closest thing we have to that is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's really wrestling with what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to be crucified. He's going to suffer a lot of pain. And he says, he's ready, he's willing. He says, but the flesh is weak. His body doesn't want to do that. And he wins. In this wrestling, he wins. And you see a man at peace before Pontius Pilate. He doesn't say a word when he's being uh, accused of all these false witnesses at the Sanhedrin, at the trial. It seems like he has some secret about how he can maintain this level of peace in the face of all kinds of horrible things. In the face of people wanting to stone him. In the face of condemnation. In the face of 40 lashes. Carrying his cross to Calvary after taking a terrible beating. Being put on the cross and still having peace in his heart. Before he gets to the cross, he says, Women of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but for yourselves and for your children. Because he knew what the Romans were going to do within that generation. Still having a spiritual mind. On the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Still walking in the love of God. Keeping himself in the love of God, Father. And still keeping in mind the will of the Father. And saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he says, it is finished. He ran the race. He finished what God had called him to do and it was done. And he could say that at the end of that. That is the life that's put before us. And the secret is revealed that it's really opened up to us in the Word of God. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. His sleep shall be sweet. You read in the book of Jeremiah. We read it all over the New New Testament that there is a connection between believing what the Word of God says for us, taking it on a personal level, and what happens on the inside of us. There is no mistake of that. And the opposite is also true. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked in the book of Isaiah. 
I believe it's in Ecclesiastes, it says the wicked are like the waves of the sea. They never can rest. Does that mean if there's turmoil and unrest in my heart that I'm wicked? What it means is that we're wrestling against our carnal, wicked human nature that all of us have. And that's what causes the unrest. That turmoil, that that uneasy feeling and we're wrestling the wrestling that's going on in the inside of us the bible says that the spirit wrestles that the spirit and the flesh are at enmity with each other and we experience that enmity inside of us and that's what jesus was experiencing at gethsemane in the garden of gethsemane his desire was to do the will of god in his heart but his body saying, no, no, no. <clears throat> when we're being tempted, our heart is saying, I will do the will of God. Our flesh is saying, who cares about that? I want to do this. I want to, I want to do what I want to do, the self-will. And there's the, there's the enmity going on inside of us. And we have the enemy... <clears throat> trying to influence us to follow that evil nature. We Each of us has that evil, wicked nature. We may never, have, we may never see, have never have seen or never will see the extreme of it. But it's there. And it's in all of us. That's why it says, you know, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. Jesus says we must deny ourselves and pick up our cross crucifixion of the flesh and follow him because it's in doing that that we're free to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and we experience his peace it's in believing God may the God of all hope fulfill you with joy and peace in believing believing not just believing the word of God but believing the word of God for me, just taking it in. I remember there was a woman that Kate and I knew in Norristown. She was an ex-heroin addict. And she had gone to a lot of meetings in a lot of different places and evangelistic meetings, all kinds of meetings. And she heard a lot of the word of God. And she had been ministered to by a lot of Christians. And... She eventually passed on, and our hope is that she's with the Lord. But one of the things she said that she struggled with, she goes, I believe that God that God uh, loves us. She says, but I really struggle that God loves me. When it becomes personal, that's where the struggle really begins for some of us. That he loves me as an individual, not just... This whole thing like we're a bunch of cattle and God loves us all and just all this you know, generic kind of love. No. God loves us each as individuals. It says the very hairs of our head are numbered. God knows us that intimately. And it's that personal. And when we can embrace that God loves me as an individual, that's where we're getting somewhere. And not only that, but the promises of God are for us who are in Christ 
individuals. That means me too. The promise of God, that's for me. But God says, the things are, it's not just for, you know, somebody sitting out on a mountaintop. It's for me. It's for you. It's for us. Us who are in Christ. It's for us. And so, we can stand on it. And if we can stand on it, in believing, we find joy and peace in believing. In believing what? In believing what He said. In believing His promises. In believing His Word. When He says, ask and you shall receive, and we believe something like that, well, that makes all the difference in the world. And many Christian parents have said, oh, my children are here and there and everywhere. I know. You know, we're going through a lot of, Kate and I are going through a lot of ourselves with our children. We know. But there's promises concerning all these things, concerning our future generations. And we have to not be moved by what we see, by the seen, but by the unseen, by the power of God. And trust God that when He says, ask and we shall receive, that He's going to answer our prayers. And take that in on a personal level and apply it into personal situations in life. That's when it becomes real. That's when it becomes reality. It's not just a bunch of religious talk. That's when it becomes real. When it applies to my life. Because what good is it if it's just a bunch of talk? And it doesn't meet us where we are. But God meets us where we are. He is our God. He is our Father. For us who are in Christ. As many as receive Him, to them He gives the power to become the children of God. If we're the children of God, that means God is our Father. If we receive Christ, then God is our Father. We look at life differently then. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is we can easily forget all of this. And we can just be grazing out in a cornfield somewhere and forget everything we've learned and everything we've read in the Word of God and not apply it to ourselves. And that's where we get in trouble. That's where the turmoil comes. That's where we feel hopeless. We feel helpless. We feel depressed and discouraged and we get beat up. And the devil takes advantage of us. When the Bible says love our enemies, yeah, but if I love my enemies, then they'll take advantage of us. Don't worry about it. Just walk in the light of God's Word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And it invigorates and revitalizes us mm-hmm. as we believe it. Because we can read the Word of God and we can I, can, I read ten chapters a day and, you know, and I'm still and feel dark and everything else. Well, how much of what we read did we believe? Because mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if we don't mix faith with what we heard, then we're just like the Israelites. We can see all the works of God. We can see water coming out of a rock. We can see ten plagues in Egypt. We can see the, the, the Red Sea opening up. And we will gain no insight from any of that. We don't mix faith with what we believe, with what we've heard. Sorry, We don't mix faith with what we've heard. We don't get any insight from it. Jesus said of his own disciples, they gained no insight from the miracles that they saw of the loaves and the fishes. 
Now these were people who spent every day with Jesus. They heard all of his teaching, all of his preaching. They saw all of his miracles. And what did he say to them? How is it you have no faith? What's wrong with you? You know? How is it you have no faith? Oh, slow to believe. Slow of heart to believe. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. He said that concerning his disciples. When his disciples couldn't cast out demons out of this boy. They cast a demon out of this boy. His response was, Oh, faithless and perverse generation. Twisted generation. How long will I be with you? A hard heart. A hard heart towards the, what God has said in his word. What he declares in his word. I remember a bumper sticker. says, God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. That settles it. What do you mean that settles it? That settles it in my heart. That settles it in my mind. That I have to reorder my life according to the Word of God. And deprogram myself from all the carnality. All the trash. And all the way of the world. And all the way of darkness. And all the way of my human nature. From there, I'm going to go to uh, John 14. John 14, um, David, you could read verses 25 to 27. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Mm-hmm. It's not the peace of the world. This is not worldly-minded. This is not the peace that the world has. Because like I said, the peace of the world comes and goes. He said, my peace I give to you. Do we, are we experiencing peace in our life and our hearts? So wait, you know, I got all these problems though. You see, but if it's only when we don't have problems that we have peace, that's the peace of the world. That's what Jesus is talking about. This isn't the kind of peace he's talking about. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. And if we are experiencing that, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Fear and turmoil and trouble in the heart are a choice. Peace 
or trouble, peaceful seas or troubled seas in our hearts. Jesus told us in John 16, he says, the last verse, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Trouble is part of life. And so he says, don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Trouble on the outside, but peace on the inside. We can have it. That's the peace that Jesus promised. Promised. A promise from God. And God is not a liar. We can experience the peace of God. He said, well, I want to experience that. How can I get that? You must believe it. Believe this message. Believe that He gives us peace. Jesus said, I have come to bring a, give you life, and that more abundantly. That abundant life. Do we believe that? Do we, if we believe it, are we experiencing it? For us. Again, this gets personal down in our hearts. Am I experiencing abundant life on the inside in my soul? Am I experiencing peace in my soul? Or am I kind of up and down and all over the place? It's a fight to stay in this place. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. That doesn't come naturally. That doesn't come without a fight. Because we have to bring every thought captive to obeying Christ in order to experience that. Casting out all imagination. So what imagination? Imagine everything that can possibly go wrong. In the world it's called Murphy's Law. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And we can have a mindset that makes us fearful because we're afraid that's going to happen. Whatever can go wrong is going to go wrong and we're scared and we're fearful. And, uh, you know, you get a chest fall, oh, I'm going to get pneumonia. We have fear of pneumonia. We fear disease. We find a lump and we fear cancer. It just goes on and on. We get forgetful and we fear dementia. Your Alzheimer's disease. All kinds of things. And we can just walk in fear. But the Bible tells us that if we trust God, we will not fear evil tidings. Bad news. We won't fear bad things coming upon us. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. But spiritually minded is not natural. If we follow our own inclinations, our natural inclinations, the only time we'll ever have peace is when everything is lined up right. And that rarely happens in life. It explains why so many on anxiety medication, antidepressants, tranquilizers, nerve medicine. 
There's no peace in the natural way. And so many people are on these medications that they're concerned that the byproduct of these medications after they pass through are getting in the waterways, are getting in the, in, the, in the public water and everything else. So much of it. Pharmaceutical companies are just glad to keep on pumping this stuff out. What is the answer? The answer is let the peace of God rule in our hearts, as we read in Colossians. Let the peace of God rule our hearts by being spiritually minded in everything. But say, that doesn't seem realistic. Well, that's where the fight is. That's what we're fighting to bring every thought captive to obeying Christ. And the Bible says we have weapons of our warfare that God has given us that will bring us into a place where we can have our thoughts prisoner, our mind in a place where it's obeying Christ. Our thoughts line up with the Word of God. Our thoughts line up with the life of Jesus, the way He lived. It doesn't come without a fight. We have to put up our spiritual dukes and fights. That's all there is to it. It's not comfortable, we don't like it, but that's just the way it is. And we, might, we have to accept that and put, put our shoulder to the plow, so to speak, as Jesus said. He will keep him in perfect peace. His mind is stayed on thee. Also in the book of Isaiah. The peace of God in our hearts. If our mind is stayed on him. Stayed on his word. Stayed on his way. Focused on him. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's, if we're experiencing the kingdom of God here and now, Jesus said the kingdom of God shall be in you. He's talking about being born of the Spirit. The kingdom of God within us, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, if we're experiencing that, he says it's righteousness, joy, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is peace. Joy, peace. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, kindness, faith. May the Lord of peace give you peace always and in every way. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. So it comes back to us, doesn't it? And our own personal responsibility in our walk with God. I want to finish with a, a psalm I've been meditating on recently. Psalm 91. Psalm 91, 
spoke to me off, often when I was an early Christian. Still does to this day. Dave, if you could read the whole chapter for us. Sure. <clears throat> he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of terror by night nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. It's a great psalm. The secret place of the Most High. This is the place of those who trust Him. Trust Him means trusting His Word, trusting what He has said, trusting His promises, trusting for His protection and His guidance and His help. He says, a 10,000 ten may fall at your right hand. You know, but it will not, you will not be taken. You know, that really shows us that we can't look at anybody else. The Bible says those who compare themselves among themselves and by themselves are not wise. It's not wisdom to compare our life in that kind of exactness to the life of others. We can gain encouragement from the work of God in other people's lives and learn lessons from the disasters that befall others. But comparing life to life is not wise. And he says, we have made the Lord our refuge, our secret place of safety. That's where our heart is. That's where we are in that dwelling place. We're living. He, he who dwells in... When you says dwell, it means you, you're living there. In the secret place of God. That secret place is a walk on water. 
It's trusting God for things we do not see. Because if we saw them, then it's not faith. But that's the place of refuge. That's the place of hope. That's the place of peace and safety. It says we will dwell safely there. My God in Him I will trust. My refuge and my fortress. He shall deliver you. Shall deliver you. He shall cover you. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, the burglar, the ones lurking in the darkness. Fear all kinds of things like happen on the news, shootings and horrible things happening in the world. Terror in the streets. We don't have to live that way. We can be in that secret place peace, of tranquility, of calm seas on the inside. The arrow that flies by day. Guns and, and knives. I mean, we don't have to fear the bombs, nuclear weapons. We don't have to fear any of those things. God has it all under control. And there's that secret place. Be covered with his feathers, as I said. You know, <clears throat> there's that secret place that Jesus dwelt in, that we can live in. The pestilence. We live in an age of pestilence, of plagues. Jesus told us to be one of the signs of his coming. Earthquakes, famines, food shortages, financial disasters. It's all on the horizon. Poverty. We need not fear any of these things if we dwell in that secret place. And we can dwell there. We can live in that place of peace and safety in the Most High God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We make the Lord our refuge. No evil will befall us. Why are we fearing evil then? We read God's word. He shall give his angels charge over us. In the book of Hebrews, it says angels are ministering spirits who have been sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation. The church, the people of God, power of God, angels ministering to us. It's all there. What do we have to fear? If our mind is in this spiritual realm, but that's the problem. If we just go home and fill our minds with TV and media and all kinds of nonsense, I wonder why. We're not experiencing the abundant life, the peace of God. If we're hooked into the way of the world, we go from hearing the word of God to just being hearing the, the word of the world. I wonder why we have no peace when we're feeding the flesh. When we're 
walking in the carnal mind. No wonder there's no peace. For the angels, it says that God will give His angels charge of you to keep you in all your ways, and in their hands they shall bear you up. This is very personal. That God takes a personal interest in each of us. And He gives His angels charge concerning us. And not only for us, but also our children. And our children's children. Because there are promises for them, by the way. That they are set apart by one believing parent. It says, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Now, this is the language that is used concerning the devil. A serpent, a snake, a dragon, a lion. The Bible says that, he, that, that the devil roams about like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour, whom we should resist Steadfast in the faith. Steadfast in the faith. Believing the Word of God. He will deliver us. He will set us on high because we know His name. We have known His name. We believe in Him. He shall call upon me and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. He was with David when he confronted Goliath. He was with Jonathan and his armor bearer. He was with the children of Israel when they were walking with him and they went out to battle and they trusted him. He was with them in the time of Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat. He was with Moses and Aaron. He was with Joshua. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you he said to Joshua. And no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life if you walk with me. How can we lose on this path? How can we lose? We can't lose. We cannot lose if we dwell in that secret place of trust faith, walking with Christ. We cannot lose. Don't be intimidated with what's going on around us, what's going on in our life. Do not cower or be intimidated. But trust Him in all times, all you people. Pour out your heart before Him. For God is a refuge for us.